Well, good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you please turn with me to Genesis 19, verses 1 to 29. We'll be looking at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah today, uh, a very nice and easy passage for your pastoral intern to preach. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. so this sermon is entitled, A Lesson in Lot's Rescue. Uh, we're continuing our series, as you see here on the slide, uh, five on five, which is five lessons in the five books of the Pentateuch. So we're continuing that series by looking at uh, God rescuing Lot. Um, this passage, as with all other passages detailing God's judgment, um, can sometimes come as an affront to our modern ears, uh, especially in this current cultural climate that we are in in the West, uh, a passage like this is seen as backwards and unjust or immoral. Um, Many scholars have, in fact, tried to limit the sins of Sodom to merely social ones rather than sexual, attempting to relent on the harshness of judgment toward this specific sexual act detailed uh, in Genesis 19 of homosexuality. However, um, the Bible does not relent. In fact, as we already saw last week during Pastor Andrew's sermon uh, on Genesis 18, the sin of Sodom is well attested in both the Old and the New Testaments as being both social and sexual. In fact, the sexual sin of Sodom is really what is mostly remembered in the New Testament in places like Jude 7 and 2 Peter 7 to 8, and it was the cause of their judgment. Now, as our culture continues to praise and celebrate these sins, uh, we are becoming increasingly pressed on all sides to, uh, quote-unquote, pick a camp. Family members, friends, coworkers, people at school, we all know someone in our lives or have interacted with someone who are not just entertaining these sins but are fully throwing themselves into the sort of uh, pleasure in this sexual sin. And so our, our initial reaction may be to in the light of that, lessen our view of God's judgment and um, in light of our love for that person. Uh, And in some way, we want to make them feel loved and accepted, but in doing so, uh, we often neglect the very real nature we see in this passage of God's judgment on not just sexual sin, but all of sin. Uh, The Lord includes these passages to help remind us that our sin does not go unpunished, whether or not the culture upholds it as praiseworthy. Since Eve in the garden, Satan has demented and twisted God's word to make us believe something that really isn't true. If you remember in Genesis uh, 3, Satan says, did God really say? And that is always around the corner waiting to pounce on our desire to to accept or to love, but not to love according to God's word, uh, which is infinitely better. God's, God's love and God's word, which is infinitely better than any love we can come up with on our own. And we will see the result of this love for sin and desire to be like the culture around us in the passage today. So if you are able, please stand with me as we read and receive God's word. Standing is an act of worship and reverence before our holy God as we hear his word. Hear now God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. 
and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Oh, Father, bless this time now in your word as we read about your holy, righteous, and just judgment. Help us by your spirit to understand why your judgment is good and wonder, and the wonder that is Jesus who bore the ultimate judgment on the behalf of undeserving sinners. Would you help us to see your son more clearly through this passage, and would you allow us to grow in our love and knowledge of you that we may be taken captive by your awesome power and wonderful mercy. We pray all of this in your son's glorious name. Amen. So the story here in Genesis 19 continues from chapter 18, following the journey of the angels from Abraham to the city of Sodom. And what is their mission? Well, if you remember in chapter 18, 20 through 21, it tells us, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
Now, you may be asking yourself, well, how is it possible that God doesn't know what's going on in, in the city? I thought he was omni omniscient. I thought he knew everything. Isn't he the creator of everything? How is it possible that this wicked city would go unnoticed by such a righteous and holy God? Well, in fact, the Lord does know the extent of the sin. If we look a few verses back in uh, verses 16 and 17, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Speaking about this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. So if God knows what's going on, why is he investigating the city? Well, for one, we know that later in the Mosaic law, uh, when it's given, one of the stipulations of righteous and just judgment is that there needed to be at least two witnesses. Uh, these two angels who are going down to Sodom are not only there to rescue Lot, but also so that no one can say that God's judgment is unjust. Isn't it amazing that God as our creator, God as uh, sovereign over everything, could have easily wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the planet without a word, without saying anything, without justifying himself. And yet he takes pains and he takes measures and we get a glimpse of God's character in his care for justness, for justice. He's not some madman in the sky blowing up cities. He really cares about what is good and what is right. And so he is following through with his character in being just and sending these two angels as a witness. But also, secondly, we see that this action of God going down is repeated throughout other parts in the Bible, detailing God's personal interaction with his creation. He does not sit up in the clouds as some distant deist being who created the world and just let it go and is not aware of what's going on. No, he comes down both uh, positively and negatively. Uh, negatively, we see it at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. When he comes to judge the people for gathering together and attempting to be like God, uh, he comes down to disrupt them, to stop what they're doing because they're trying to build this city up and become God. But also positively, we see him coming down on Mount Sinai to interact with Moses and give him the law in Exodus 19. And ultimately, of course, we see this culmination of uh, God coming down in the incarnation of Jesus, who came both for salvation and for judgment. And it's such a beautiful picture that God does not um, stay distant, but he personally interacts with his creation. He personally interacts with his people that he created, and he does not leave them um, to do whatever. He, he is there. He's not just transcendent, but he's also imminent and personal. So the angels arrive at Sodom, where they find Lot sitting at the gate. Uh, for some background, the gate of a city uh, in the ancient Near East was used for the same purposes that um, we would relate to something like a courthouse today where they do legal business, meetings, uh, marriages. In fact, we see later in Ruth chapter 4, uh, this picture of what a gate is for. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So the the gate is important. It's where the elders meet. It is where judges meet. It is where business happens. And we find Lot in this gate um, concerned with the official affairs of the city. He's made himself a sort of judge. As we remember reading, They the men of the city call him a judge. And so we 
we know that he is not just sitting on the gate doing nothing. He has made himself this uh, public figure. He became highly interested in what was going on in the city, and he wanted to be able to deal with the people. However, we can know that this is not just a random detail thrown in there by Moses, but it, it, it's sort of showing us this parallel to Abraham uh, thematically across the Old Testament. If you remember back in Genesis 13, when Abram and Lot are choosing the land in which they want to live, Lot immediately picks the Jordan Valley. Why? Well, because it looks good to the eyes, because it's attractive, because it looks prosperous. Just a verse later, we read this. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And here comes a very important verse, a few verses later. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Our biblical ears uh, should be ringing. Not only does Moses intentionally throw in the detail of Lot moving eastward, if you remember when Pastor Andrew was preaching through Jonah, this idea of people moving eastward in the Bible is a moving away from God's presence. It is a uh, disobedience. It is, it is not in line with God's will. And so he's moving eastward. And not only that, but Lot pitches his tent near Sodom, which he knows is wicked and is known for being a wicked and, and great sinful city. Um, and so these men in the city of Sodom descend from the line of Cain um, in Genesis 4, the, the one who murdered Abel and are identified with Satan in the Bible. And, and the reason this is important is because the Bible makes much about this struggle between the cities of men, the wicked cities like Sodom, and the coming city of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see battle after battle of these men who have descended from the line of Cain, fighting against and causing trouble for the righteous line of Seth, starting in Genesis 4 and 5. This battle would wage on for thousands of years until the uh, arrival of Jesus on the scene, the warrior seed mentioned in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people from the clutches of Satan and bring the new Jerusalem where the people of God would dwell forever in his city. So we see this antithetical nature running through the Old Testament, which basically acts as the foundation for the rest of the struggles in the Old Testament. Uh, And so, I say this because it's interesting to note that in Genesis 13, Lot pitches his tent near Sodom when he knows it's wicked. And then only a few chapters later in Genesis 19, in our narrative today, we see that not only is he still living near the city, but now he has moved into the city and he has made permanent dwelling there. He has begun to identify with the city of man and this wickedness, even though he knows that the city is wicked and unrighteous. Moses really... Pain, painfully goes through this and repeats multiple times in this passage that he is in a house, that they are in front of Lot's house, that he goes back into his house. And he, he has made this permanent dwelling and Moses is driving the point home that unlike Abraham, who is still a sojourner, even in the promised land of Canaan, who is still living in a tent, waiting for this glorious city of God to arrive and for God to fulfill his promise that he will make a great nation. He's still living in a tent. Lot, on the other hand, is already making his dwelling in the city of man, is already done away with his being a sojourner in this world, but is making a permanent dwelling and is starting to identify with the world. And really, we can, as believers today, we can relate to this. You know, we often talk about uh, 
not being of the world, but being in the world. Um, and we try to make that distinction. And yet sometimes like Lot, we become more accustomed to being of the world rather than being sojourners in the world. We uh, begin to take on and become acclimated to uh, the unrighteousness and wickedness around us rather than being fully obedient to God's word. And it's not like Lot is wholly throwing his faith away, but you can see slowly he moves from a tent to a permanent dwelling in the city that he knows is wicked. And he becomes a judge of a city that he knows is wicked. He's becoming more and more identified and willing to um, be identified with this city. So we see this conflict, this confusion of a righteous man living in the world and starting to become identified with the world, which we compare not only against Abraham, but helpfully we can compare him against someone like Joseph or Daniel who are living in highly pagan, highly wicked cities. And yet, they are shining lights. They are beacons in a dark world where they are given these high positions of high government officials, and yet they're still adhering to and obeying the word of the Lord and are not considered themselves a part of the cities, but are sojourners and foreigners waiting for the city of God to come. And, and even while they're in the city, you can see there's this distance that they have from the city. So continuing on, Lot offers the men to stay in his home, as was custom of the time to which the men refuse. Um, and now this situation is probably less like the angels wanted to actually live or sleep in the town square and more like, you know, when your friends or parents come over to your house uh, or come into town and you say, no, stay with us. Like, no, 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 we'll get a hotel or Airbnb. It's too, you know, we don't want to burden you. We don't want to cost too much money. We don't want to make you cook for us or anything. You say, no, come on, come on, mom, come on, dad, just stay with us. And they say, no, no, no. So you go through like 10 times of doing that until finally they agree. And really it was never like they were actually going to stay in the hotel. It was just sort of this nicety that they were doing. And so we, we see this little exchange um, and Lot brings them in and invites them in for a feast and unleavened bread. And we should note quickly, unleavened bread uh, was the same kind of bread that the Israelites made as they were rushing out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so there is this uh, marker in the text that is, that this story is starting to pick up. Unleavened bread is rushed. And now some commentaries think that uh, Lot knew that the city would react to these men. And so he's making bread so that they can eat and go to sleep and then leave in the morning. Uh, we don't really know. But instantly in the next verse, the narrative picks up very quickly. And we see those men of the city, the entire city, young and old, surrounding the house. Now, if you're keeping your biblical caps on in this, uh, you should be reminded of another text in Genesis a little earlier around Noah's time in Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we see the totality of the wickedness and sinfulness of this city. This is not just a few men who are interested in knowing these angels. It's not just the old men, but it is both the young and the old. Every single person in the city has come to Lot's house to do this thing, to surround and demand these visitors be brought out so that they may commit this sexual act against them. 
Now, again, at this point, many scholars and biblical interpreters today will try and weaken the sin of Sodom by saying to know someone isn't really a euphemism, but it's something entirely else. Uh, they do this so that they can, again, release the Bible from its backward morals because we've obviously advanced in the 21st century and have become uh, more righteous and we know more about sin and sexuality and all that. Um, so in this time now, we are able to decide what is sin and what it is not. Though that would be very convenient for them, and I'm sure it would be nice for them, the Hebrew word yada, which means to know literally, is used multiple times in the Bible as a euphemism for sex. It is inescapable that this sin is a sexual sin, an affront against these men. Uh, the sin laid out in this chapter is nothing other than homosexuality, and we see that God's judgment is justly deserved. Now, we see Lot rightly puts himself between his house and the man of the city, acting according to the righteous title he has given in Second Peter. The New Testament says he's a righteous man. And so we see, in some way, him doing righteous acts. He puts himself in between the guests and uh, this mob to protect them. However, he quickly shows that he is not fully righteous because he uh, immediately, once they do not accept his offer, he offers his daughters as a way to assuage these, uh, these crazy men, these men who want to do these things. And now, obviously, without a doubt, this act of offering his daughters, though he wants to do a righteous thing, is not a good and righteous act. He is repaying evil with evil. And, and that's not a, a biblical concept. Doing the lesser of two evils, um, though sometimes we we try and say we have to do it or or sometimes we do do it, it's not a biblical concept to give evil or do evil to someone in response to evil in order to obtain a righteous thing. So Lot, in his desire to do good, has jeopardized his daughters, enraged the people of the city, and has become utterly helpless. The angels have to forcibly remove Lot from the situation and bring him back inside for his safety. Only a few short moments after Lot attempted to save them. We see that it was not the angels who needed saving, but it was Lot himself. On top of removing Lot from the situation, they also blind the men outside. Um, they uh, blind it so much that they wear themselves out, groping for the door. And uh, some biblical scholars also say that this might be a spiritual battle because it seems like it's not just a physical blindness. People who are temporarily blinded, who are actually blinded, can still do things, can still open doors. And so all the men in the city are blinded by this bright light, and yet they aren't able to find the door, and, and so much so that they wear themselves out searching for it. So that we might see this, this spiritual battle even more so between the angels and the Lord and these men of the city. And so Lot is, is being saved more than he probably realized. Um, and so now we get to the angels having pulled Lot inside and inform him to find all of his relations in the city um, and that they only have a short time before the city is destroyed. Um, because, as was mentioned earlier, as the witnesses, they have come and seen the wickedness of the city and have deemed it ready uh, for judgment. And it is just and is worthy of God's judgment. So Lot goes to his sons-in-law. And what do they do? Well, they laugh in his face. They probably called him ridiculous and thought he was going crazy. It was easy for them to laugh it off, just like it was seemingly easy, if you remember, in Genesis 17, 
for Sarah to laugh at God's promise that he would open her womb and provide a child. They both seem equally uh, absurd to these people, um, that it is so far off, that this city would never be destroyed. It would, come on, it's not really that bad. God's judgment is not really that imminent or crazy, right? And Sarah, you know, I'm barren. I can't provide a child. There's no way that God will be able to do this, that I will have a child. It's not possible. And so they both laugh. However, we see that despite Sarah's disbelief, God followed through with his promise. So what does that mean for Lot's sons-in-law? And don't we too often laugh or think less of God's judgment, like it's something far off in the distance to only be thought of at church by some uh, old pastor or elder or theologian or something. But there's coming a day when God will no longer suffer the sins and injustice committed against him. We are imminently as people afraid of the next worst thing. I'm sure this morning, even as the snow was falling and and last night as we saw the news alert that uh, snow would be coming, that we would worry about how am I going to get out? I'm going to have to shovel and I'm going to have to salt and do all these things and clean out the car in the morning. And those are all fine things to worry about. I'm not saying that's bad. Um, But our reaction to these news stories, to uh, the snow, to um, something like a new variant of Omicron or a variant of COVID, we are preparing for the worst to come. We are instantly thinking of the worst thing that's going to happen. And yet our first instinct when we hear about God's judgment from this passage or other passages in Revelation or the rest of the Bible, our first reaction is not to freak out, is not to think, oh no, it's coming. We consider it a long off thing we don't need to worry about. We laugh it off. We think less of it, just as Lot's sons-in-law did. But the judgment wasn't far off, was it? No, in fact, only the next morning did God rain down sulfur and fire on the cities, which Lot's sons-in-law were having a blast in, were living their life, were having fun. Friend, don't discount God's judgment as a thing to worry about in the future. It is very real. It is a very imminent thing. And the Bible repeatedly repeatedly calls us to be aware of that, to be ready when the master comes. We never know when he's going to come, but we always have to be ready. <clears throat> so the next day, the angels urge Lot to escape while they still have time. But what does it say in, in verse 16? But he lingers. Why? Why does Lot linger here? And this is important because, again, we see this confliction, this confusion in the righteous Lot that he has become adjusted to the daily life of the city, that he's become so identified with the city that he's actually considering whether or not it's a better thing to escape the judgment and really is maybe thinking it's not going to happen. Maybe his sons-in-law got to him. You know, I can imagine him saying, is judgment really going to come onto Sodom? I don't know. I mean, I've seen the Lord do some things before. He's been, he's provided blessing. He's been wrathful, but I, and I've seen him follow through on his promises, but maybe this time is different. I don't know if I want to give up all the things that I have, my house, my family, my belongings. I don't know if I want to do that. And so what happens? We get a repeating of the event where the angels pull him back into the house and the angels seize him by his wrist, hearkening back to a few verses ago, rescue him from the confliction. Uh, The Lord is being merciful to him. Even when Lot is reluctant to go and is conflicted about where his obedience lies, the Lord forcibly removes him from his stupor and places him outside of the city. Once they are outside the city, the angels say, 
Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So, um, so they bring Lot and his family outside of the city, and he is in this another act of confusion. And in that instant, as he's more conflicted and still wanted to go back to the city, what does he do? He asks if he can go to the city of Zoar. He wants to go to this little city on the side and just, it's a little city. It's not bad. It's, it's not as wicked as Sodom. Let me go there. It's fine. And we can see internally, he's still struggling with this identification with the city that he does not want to give up. Um, he does not want to give up his prosperity. He does not want to give up this life in the city. And again, this parallels Abraham. When uh, God told Abraham to leave his family, leave his land, leave his prosperity and go to this new land that he doesn't know anything about, Based on the promise of God, he goes without question. But Lot, on the other hand, when he is commanded by God to go, get away from the city, to leave with his family, to leave the prosperity, to leave the city where he is, and to go to another place, he is not immediately obedient. He does not immediately trust in the Lord. He is still conflicted and confused. And so he sheepishly asks if he can run to the city uh, on the side that's still in, in the land. And so God says, yes that he would save the city that Lot goes to. Now, uh, Zoar, just as a little aside, is a small city. It's, it's not a, a place that is full of righteousness. It's not a place that is wholly good. We don't really know what happens when he gets there, but we see a few verses later in verses 30 to 38. We get this account that when Lot goes um, to Zoar, he eventually leaves the city and goes to a cave nearby. And in this cave, his daughters get him drunk and commit heinous sexual acts on him in order to keep their lineage going. We see again the result of his choice not to trust God, but to seek his own good by his own means. So returning back to this narrative, we see in verse 23 that the sun rises on the earth when Lot goes to Zoar. It's interesting to know that during the whole event uh, that it was dark. It was dark outside when the men were there. It was nighttime. When the wickedness was being demonstrated, the world was dark. But now the light is shining, the light of God's truth, his justice is shining bright. And we see the Lord reigning on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire out of heaven. And he destroys everything, everything that was in the land, all the cities, everything, including the grass on the ground. They were all completely destroyed. Now, we don't really know what this uh, sulfur and fire was. It could have been a volcano. It could have been a lightning strike. There were these uh, petroleum, these, this bitumen pits underneath the land of Sodom. And so when uh, something would explode, it would really explode and catch fire. Um, and maybe God really did rain sulfur and fire down miraculously from heaven. It is not out of the question that he's able to do that. Uh, but we know that it was total judgment and total destruction. And again, we see another parallel in uh, the book of Genesis with this passage, which is Noah and the judgment on the wicked people of the earth. We see in the beginning that the wickedness had overtaken all the people in Genesis 6, 5. Uh, remember that, that verse we looked at earlier. And in Genesis 19, 4, the men of the city, both young and old, everyone was wicked. And then we see that God saves one righteous person in his family, Noah and his family, and Lot and his family. And then God rains judgment on the earth. He rains judgment in rain, water rain, um, and to create the flood. 
And he rains judgment in Genesis 19 with sulfur and fire over the city, over this expanse of evil. And then even later, we see that uh, the parallels of the faults of Noah and the faults of Lot, who are both considered righteous men, even though they are righteous, they still fall into this sin, to this um, drunken stupor, which then their children take advantage of them advantage of them sexually. So we see this parallel of these righteous men who are saved by God, not by their own doing, but by God's miraculous and salvific hand because of the covenant he made with them. And then we get to Lot's wife and we think, you know, that probably was a little harsh, don't you think? All she's doing is looking back at the city. What's the problem? She's still running away with Lot. She's still away from the city, away from the judgment. What is the problem? What she's doing is instead of looking forward at the promises of God, instead of trusting in the Lord that what he has on the other side of these mountains that they're running to, on the other side of this escape is good and better for them. So she looks backward and she pines for, she desires the world. She desires this city, the prosperity that she had been living in. She desires to be identified with it and the wickedness rather than the blessedness and city of God. And she is used later in the Gospels in Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Jesus says to remember Lot's wife. Remember what she does, that she would rather be identified with the world rather than identified with God's people. She would rather have the possessions and would rather have material wealth and would rather have prosperity in the moment rather than blessing, eternal blessing for all of life. And she is in some way, we can say, because salt is a preservative. Uh, though we, you know, we don't know if she was actually like a standing statue. If you were to go back there and, and see her, if Lot were to return, we don't know if she was standing there as a monument, but salt is a preservative. Uh, and if people were to walk by and hypothetically see her body, we could be revi- visually reminded of what happens when you become consumed with being identified with the world and desiring sin desiring the world more than holding fast to the truth of God, where he is actively working in your life, actively saving you from your sin, and yet you still turn back. You would still rather love the world than love God. And so Jesus warns against being Lot's wife, and Moses is warning to not be like Lot's wife. Do not fall into the temptation, friends, even as you are being saved, even as you are being Hold forcibly by your hand, do not look back on the world and desire it more than your salvation, more than the blessedness that comes with being with the Lord. Because the moment that you do is the moment that you become consumed with that sin and can never turn back. We see that she looks back and instantly she's turned into salt. So we have this solemn reminder and the solemn ending to this judgment. And yet, in the last few verses, we are given a beautiful picture of God's promises and God's fulfillment as we see Abraham, knowing that the Lord would follow through with whatever his plan was, gets up early in the morning to the place where he had previously spoken with the Lord and sees that after all of his bargaining, after all of his asking for 50 and then 45, then 40, 30, 20, and eventually 10, the whole city is destroyed. No one was righteous. There's only one. And it's because of this intercession that Lot is saved. And we see that this is really the second time that Lot is saved by Abraham. In Genesis 14, if you remember, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in the area take Lot captive. And Abraham comes and delivers Lot. 
And then again, we see in Genesis 18, Abraham, as we saw last week, intercedes on behalf of Lot that he would be rescued. And again, because of Abraham, he was saved. Isn't it a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness in the light of someone who, you know, based on his actions, may or may not deserve this salvation. Lot, who has some good mixed with some bad, is saved not because he committed righteous acts, but because someone on behalf of him interceded for him. In verse 29, we see that when God destroys the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So because of God's covenant promises, because of what God said he would do, he rescued Lot, not on the basis of Lot's righteousness, but on the basis of his own word. Lot is the perfect uh, picture of you and me in some ways. He's considered righteous and is saved by God's covenant promises. And yet we see him struggle and we see him be conflicted and influenced and persuaded by the world in so many different ways. Friends, there's... um, Don't build your house in the city of men. Don't become so identified with the world that you can't tell the difference between you and a non-believer. Jesus did not take you by your hand so you could turn around and look back at your life wishing you could go back. He saved you for something better. There's this uh, great connection in 1 Corinthians 3, someone made uh, with the story of Lot. It's not about Lot, um, but it says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, Uh, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It's not hard to make the connection, even though this might not actually be about Lot. If we're able to be there and see Lot after his rescue, we could probably smell the smoke on his clothes. We could see the back of his hairs singed from the fire. We could see all the destruction around in the city. The whole land, the plants and everything were burnt up. He made it barely by the skin of his teeth and all of his works were burned up. All the things that he had built and cared for and desired in the city, completely gone in an instant. They were all for nothing. And this is contrasted to Abraham who lived according to the promises of God and had his foundation built on something that was everlasting. Friends, we too have our lives built on something everlasting. Because Jesus Christ has come, lived the perfect life, obeyed the law, died on a cross, and was was resurrected, you and me as believers get to live today waiting for the glorious city to come. Not based on our own works, but because what Christ has done on our behalf, because of his constant intercession and his covenant faithfulness. It's even better than Abraham's intercession. Because Abraham wasn't perfect. He wasn't God. Though he was faithful and obedient to God, he was never really able to save Lot by his own works or his own uh, deeds. It was always based on the faithfulness of God to keep the promise of his covenant, which he always did and he always will keep. I want to encourage us all to look to Christ as we live our lives today. Now, as creatures as humans, we are in need of constant reminders. So what does looking to Christ as we live our lives today so that we don't look back look like? Well, maybe that means spending more time 
uh, in his word to see what he says about his covenant faithfulness, to see about the blessing and truth of his word. Maybe it means growing in relationships here at church in CGs or something so that you can mutually encourage each other to look to Christ. You can be there for one another to lift each other up and to not fall back into sin, but to look forward in, in, ex in expectant hope and desire to see the city of God come. When we start looking back at our old lives, wanting to return, knowing full well that it only ends in death, remember what Christ did on the cross. Hold fast to his promise that one day he is coming again and that he is coming in judgment and in salvation. For those of you who have yet to come to believe in Christ, do you know that there is a, a judgment coming where you will not only have your works burned up, but will also be thrown into the lake of the fire? The gospel offers this forcible removal from the enslaving fires of judgment into the glorious freedom of God's glory and everlasting joy. For fellow believers, when the fires of judgment come, and trust me, they will come. It is not a distant, far-off thing. It is an imminent thing. Will your works be burnt up? Or will you be forever looking to Christ, dependent on his salvation and mercy, knowing that anything you had in the past pales in comparison to what he has to offer? Let's pray.